this VBS week is always incredibly fun, and it is great. It is always great to see how many of our church members come out and volunteer their time. Uh, and, and one of the values we have here as a church is that when we look at who is responsible for discipling up the children into mature Christians who someday will lead the church, right? Uh, one of those values is that we don't tell kids they are the future of the church. They are the church now, and we're discipling them to become the future leaders of the church. And, and so as part of that, we view the parents as the primary disciplers of the kids. You are responsible parents to raise up your kids into mature adult Christians. Now, that is obviously seems very intimidating sometimes when you think about the fullness of what that means. And so we also as a church want to surround parents and help them do that. Um, and, and part of that showed up this week in VBS. We, we went from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. That is work time. So how do we do that? How do we have that many volunteers who are willing to serve? Well, uh, some of them took time off for work. Some of them were teachers, so they had off time off work. And others were well past the age of being parents themselves, and they were retired, and they could have this time. And what that means is, even though we may be past the age or not in that stage of parenting, we still want to surround parents and help them with that job as a church. You're not alone in it. And one of the things we do here as a church is each week we review one simple belief that we have as Christians. And we hand out this little thing called a table talk that is a resource for parents to take home and over a meal share with their kids what does this belief that we hold as Christians, how does it influence the way we live? So it's a resource for you. And it's also a resource for those of us who aren't parenting, right? Because it's always good to review these basic truths no matter what age you're in. It's always good to go back to the basics and remind yourself. So for this week, we're asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? And one of the benefits of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. How many of you guys, when you're trying to explain something, sometimes you, you don't know the right words. You, you're like, I'm trying to tell you something, but you just can't get it out, and they're not understanding it. Anyone have that problem? Like, you just can't find the right words? Yeah, me too. It, it, even us adults have that problem quite a lot. We just can't find the right words. But the Bible tells us, because God knows you, he sends his spirit who knows your heart, he knows your thoughts, and he knows your emotions. And even though you can't find the right words, because we have God's spirit, he knows the right words. And so he takes our prayers, however, however we pray them, and he brings them for God and tells him what we actually mean. So we don't have to be worried that God doesn't understand us because we can't find the right words. He knows us, and he knows what we're trying to say. So because we have the Holy Spirit... God takes all of our prayers, and we don't have to be worried about finding the right words. He knows what we are praying, and he, God hears us. Good. So you can take this home as a resource if you want it and talk a little bit more about what this means for us as Christians. But today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn to there. And one of the things we do as a church when we are reading the word of God together, which that's what we believe the Bible is, is God's word written to us so that we might know him. We stand and, and give attention and respect to God's word. So I want you guys, as you're turning to Luke 15, go ahead and stand. We're going to read this together. So um, this is what Luke 15 says. So I'm going to read through the whole thing. So it says this. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave those ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of him said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Now he was longing to be fed with the pods that pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Imagine this. He's so hungry. The pigs he's working with, he wants to eat their food. That's gross, isn't it? He must have been very hungry. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And now they begin to celebrate. Uh, Father, I pray to you and I thank you for how much you care for us, how much you love us, and how much you go out of your way to show us that. And I pray as we're reading your word that we would see the compassion and love you have for us and be changed by it. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, there is further part to the story, and we're going to get to that part of the story at the end. So don't worry. If you're reading along, you're like, that wasn't all of it. We will get to the end of the story. Um, but first, I just want to talk a little bit about what God feels towards us. You see, um, a, a, a lot of us um, and, and a lot of your friends that are family members might, might um, view God as someone who doesn't care. They might view God as someone who doesn't, isn't someone really to be loved by or have a relationship with them. If they believe in God at all, they might say something like, well, there's billions and billions of people. Who am I to this God? I'm just one person among many. Or they might, they might view God as only really caring about the super spiritual holy people, right? It's like, oh yeah, like the, the, uh, the Mother Teresas of this world God cares about. But me, I'm just an ordinary person. 
Or some of you might not even view yourself as an ordinary person. You might look at your life and be like, man, I am a terrible person. I have done so many bad things. Surely God, if he knows about me at all, he doesn't think well of me, right? And, and so the story of the Bible again and again and again is God saying just how much he cares about us, how much he loves us, and how much he pursues us. So much so that uh, one of the things we believe as Christians is that God is Trinitarian. And that just means this. There is one God, and yet there are three persons within that one Godhead. We don't understand how it works. God is far bigger than we can ever understand, but it means that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God loved us so much that the second person, the Son of God himself, became a human being. He wanted us to know how much he cared for us, so he left the privileges of sitting on the throne of heaven and became a human being, suffered all the indignities that human beings suffer. And then he came and then he died, which is the punishment for the evil we commit. He died in our place and rose again so that we might have a restored relationship with God and life forever. That's how we know how much God cares about us. But this Jesus, this son of God, when he was on earth, he told these three stories. Now, let's look at what is happening when he tells these three stories. So if we pick up where Jesus is here in Luke 15, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So to put yourself in the context, this is around the first century. This is in Israel among the Jewish people. They're conquered by the Roman Empire, and there's some backwater conquered territory, right, in the middle of nowhere Roman world. But the tax collectors were like the worst of the worst Jewish people. They were the ones, they're kind of like our IRS, but a bit worse than that. They were fraudulent. They tried to extort the people they collected the tax from, and they gave it to their enemies, the Roman government. Right? So if you were a Jewish person, you hated the tax collectors. They were a bit of a mix of the IRS and some sort of pyramid skied fraud person. Right? So these were the worst of the worst people in your mind. But not just the tax collectors, other sinners, it says, as well. And so all sorts of notoriously bad people, the worst of the worst. And if you're looking at Jesus, and these are the type of people he's gathering around him, you might go, who is this guy, right? This guy claims to be the son of God, and this is who he has around him? And so the very like holy people of the day, the ones who made sure to follow all of God's commandments, says the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes are just people who studied the Bible closely, right, and wrote it down and copied it. And then the Pharisees, they were like the holiest of holies. They were trying to lead Israel into being faithful followers of God in their day. And they looked at Jesus and the people he was gathering around him, and they said, what are you doing? This man just gathers, he just gathers sinners, and he eats with them. Like, shouldn't you be preaching at them? Shouldn't you be telling them to repent before they're cursed and doomed? Like, what are you doing gathering these sinners around you? And these three stories are Jesus's response to both them and to the sinners and tax collectors. There are two audiences. So I want you to put yourself in the place of these two audiences and hear what Jesus has to say. So the first one is the story of a shepherd who has lost his sheep. All right. Now, the shepherds, imagine this, you're living all day with your sheep. You're going out with them. You're caring for them from when they are born to all the way when they die, each each season you're you're taking their, their fur and you're, you're taking it off, and that's how you make your living. 
And this shepherd who has a hundred sheep lost one of them. What does that shepherd do? Now, this is something we kind of get now. How many of you guys have lost a pet before? How many of you guys, your pet has run away and you couldn't find it? Think about how scared you were and how much work you did. You went outside and you searched for it. You called people around. You talked to your neighbors. You did anything you could to find this pet. But it's not just a lost pet. You see, this was also how they made their money. So imagine it wasn't just you lost your own pet, but imagine you lost your boss's pet for a second. And it might be closer to what they're feeling. It wasn't just an animal they cared from from birth to death, but it was also the way that they made money. And in in a good uh, one out of a hundred of their paycheck just got lost right there, right? That, that, that is a significant loss. So what would the shepherd do? Well, of course, they would leave their 99 and they would go out and search wherever they could possibly find to bring that one sheep back. And when they finally found it and when they finally brought it back, they would celebrate. They found their lost pet. They found their lost wages, their sheep that was gone. They have now brought back. And what Jesus is saying is that God loves his people more than any shepherd could ever love his sheep. God cares for you. He cares more than a shepherd could ever care for his sheep. And just like the shepherd would go out of his way to do whatever he could to find the sheep, God goes out of his way to go after those of us who have turned our back on him, which the Bible says is every one of us. Every single human being, it says, has sinned. And what that means is that we not only turn our backs on God, it says we actually hate him. We made God our enemy. We hate God, we hate all of the things of God, and we love evil. We love the enemies of God, and we have rebelled against them. And yet God loves us so much that even while we have declared ourselves his enemies, he loved us so much that he sent his son to go after us. To not just wait till we come back, but to actively pursue us and seek us out. God loves us more than any shepherd could ever love his sheep. And then he tells another story. The second story is about a woman who has 10 silver coins and she lost one. Now, this is a story that those in Jesus' day would understand, probably more than we would, but this isn't just any 10 coins, all right? This is 10 coins that a woman would receive when she was married. So instead of 10 coins, maybe it's helpful to think of a wedding ring. Imagine now if one of the diamonds on your wedding ring got lost. What would you do to find it? Our guys who usually don't have uh, diamonds on their wedding ring, imagine if you misplaced your wedding band. What would you do to find it? Right? Because this isn't just, if you're putting yourself in that place, this isn't just a monetary value. Yes, the coins had worth. They were uh, they were worth about one day's wages. It was a drachma. It was worth about one day's wages. But obviously the value was so much more than just monetarily. They lost something incredibly, incredibly significant to them. And, and, and anyone who has ever lost a stone or a wedding ring or something precious like that, imagine those feelings mixed up with it as well. It's not just it's not just the thing that was lost, it's something valuable. It's all the memories associated with it. And whether right or wrong, you also have to wonder, what is my spouse going to think? Are they going to think that I lost it because I don't care enough about our relationship? Which, of course, that's, that's not a fair guilt, but if you've lost something like that, that's what you're feeling. And so what would you do to find it? 
Well, you would do as this woman did and light a lamp and search every spare corner of your house. You would move all the furniture around. You would do everything you could possibly do until you found this coin. And when you found it, you would, of course, gather your friends and you would celebrate. You would, or in today's, what we might do instead is we'd post on Facebook about how we found this thing that we lost, right? We would celebrate, and all those who care about us would celebrate with us, which is getting to the heart of the message that Jesus is teaching, that Jesus, that God himself cares more about human beings than we could ever care about a simple coin. And if someone who had lost a coin, yes, an important coin, would celebrate, would be so relieved and joyful when they found it, and all those who cared about that person would celebrate with them, how do you think? God would celebrate when one sinner turns and repents and returns to him. And how do you think the people that care about God would feel? You see, he is talking to both the sinner, who is far away from God, telling them how much God cares for them, but he's also talking to the Pharisee, the one who does not believe that they've done very much wrong that they need to repent of. He's saying, if you actually cared about God, would you not also rejoice when one sinner repents, if God cares so much about them, when he finds them again, why aren't you celebrating? And this gets to the final story, the climax of all three of his stories. And I want to read it again slowly so we can get the full effect. You see, he's talked about this lost sheep and this lost coin, and these are important. But now for a second, imagine that you had a child who ran away from home. That escalates it, right? Something even more important, more valuable, how much more fearful and scared and worried and concerned you are about this child. But it's more than that. You see, uh, what did this child do? So we see here that there was a man who had two sons. And the, two, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of your property that is coming to me. Now, putting yourself in this mindset, basically what he's telling his father is, I wish you were dead. Why don't you just give me my inheritance now? right? Lovely son, right? <laughs> uh, obviously, that's not a good thing. And even our day, we can, we can recoil at a son like that. We can recoil at this good father who has a son that is rebellious, and, and yet his son still hates him and tells him, I wish you would just die, but, why don't, but since you won't, why don't you just give me my inheritance now? I want it. I want to spend it on my own thing, right? But in Jesus's day, this would have been horrifying. The father would have been shamed in front of his community. And in fact, in that day, he would have even had the right to, for the shame that his youngest son brought on him, to kill his son as capital punishment. This was a capital crime. Yet that's not what his father did. His father actually gave his son what he wanted. He's like, okay, here's your money. And his son went and he blew all of his money. On just this wasteful, shameful life, he blew all the money he had on all this sinful spending. All right? Put yourself in the place of this father for a second. The son who has embarrassed you in front of your community, who said he wished you were dead, who's taken his inheritance and just blew it all incredibly quickly on just a wasteful, useless living. All right? Now this same son, because he still won't go back to his father because... He's embarrassed now, right? Because he's shamed now, because he still doesn't want to live under his father's roof. He goes and finds a job because he has to, to live. But he's so poorly paid, so poorly treated, so hungry in the midst of this famine that he's literally 
wanting to eat the food of the pigs that he's looking after. Now, once again, pigs, this is a Jewish community. What he's saying here is not that he just took any old job. He took a job that shamed his whole family, a job that was beneath any Jewish person at the time. The pork was considered an unclean animal. And so he's rejected his family, his his nationality, he's rejected his religion, he's rejected his father. This is the poor state this, this boy is in. But he finally has this realization. He's like, even my dad's servants ate better than this. Maybe if I go back, beg forgiveness, and ask to be my father's servant, he will let me at least live a better life than as a pig keeper. Okay? Putting yourself in the shoes, how do you expect the father to respond? How would Jesus' audience, the first time hearing this, have expected the father to respond? Many of us are familiar with this story, so we know how he responds, but put yourself as if you were hearing it for the first time. Our better question, how would you respond, right? Yes, your son is back, but would you make him, would you just welcome him back open arms, or would you make him, you know, pay a little bit for all that he has put you through? Like, okay, yeah, but you spent your money, so you're going to have to work hard to earn it back. What would you do? And this is how much God cares for you. Yeah, good job, thank you. This is how much he cares for you, how much he treasures you. Look at the response of the father. The response of the father is this. While he was still a far way off, so I'm um, 20, uh, I will rise, I've sinned, I'm no longer worthy. And he rose and came to his father. So verse 20, look at it with me. The son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Why did his father see him? Because even how badly his son treated the father, he was still looking for his son to return. Isn't that amazing? How much does God care for you, even though you have declared him as your enemy? Even though you've said, I hate you? No matter how many times through your life choices or even sometimes your own words, you've declared your hatred for God. He is still waiting for you to turn to him and, and ready and willing to restore that relationship. Because when he saw him, it said he felt compassion. He ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to them, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So imagine this scene. The son rehearsing this line, you can imagine if you've had kids and they've done something wrong and you see them pacing, trying to rehearse their I'm sorry line, then you know what's going through his head, right? As he's walking closer, he's rehearsing this, Dad, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Will you at least take me back as a servant? I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but at least let me be your servant. And what is the father's response? What's interesting is he doesn't respond to that line. It doesn't even hit him, it seems like. The father doesn't respond to that line at all except to do this. It says it says in verse 21, And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And in verse 22 it says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. Bring a fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
He does not even entertain the idea of him being a servant. Instead, he welcomes him back, not just as a son, but he puts on the very best robe. And he takes out the fattest calf and he slaughters it in order to have an incredible barbecue, incredible celebration. How much does God love you? He loves you more than this father loved his son. That even when you reject him, even when you hate him, he is ready and willing to forgive you as soon as you repent. And as soon as you turn to him in repentance, he will declare you his son. He will celebrate with his angels in heaven over you. And he will rejoice. He will declare you his son. Isn't that amazing? No time spent as a servant earning forgiveness back. No time in discipline in that. He instantly declares him his son and celebrates over him. That's how much God cares for you. That's an incredible thing. Yes, you are treasured. You're right. You're right. And this is the message I want you to hear because a lot of people have this idea that in order to come to God, in order to get him to notice you at all, you have to live this incredible, perfect, exceptional life like Mother Teresa. Are you just done things so badly that God cannot possibly forgive you? You are the worst of the worst sinners. But what God has to say to that is he doesn't even respond to this pleading and and trying to bargain with God saying, I will do this if you forgive me. I will do that if you will forgive me. I will earn your forgiveness. He doesn't respond to that. He just says, welcome back, my son, who is dead but now is alive, and he celebrates over you. That's what God is willing to do. The problem is so many of us refuse God's love to us. We know that God is willing to forgive us, but we just beat ourselves up over and over again. We refuse to accept his grace. Or some of us are kind of like, if the son had come and had had come before the father in his pig filth stained clothes, dirty and gross, and then the father says, give him new robes. We're kind of like, whoa, no one asked my permission. I like these robes. I want to keep them, right? Some of us reject the idea that coming to God, he makes us holy. He cleans the sin out of our life. Some of us are like, well, I want to come to God, but I want to keep this sin in my life. And we view any suggestion that God that God is wanting you to be free from sin as some sort of legalism when we don't realize, no, he's just wanting you to free. He's wanting to put on royal robes on you and make you into a son of God. But we'd still rather be the pig keeper and our slop and our filth than to wear the treasured clothes of the king of the universe. Right? Somehow we've learned to desire the pig slop, which, which seems insane, which seems crazy. But what God is offering us is freedom and a new life where he makes us each day more holy and more like his son, Jesus. We get to have that. That's the grace that God offers. So if that is you, if you are someone whose view of God is just some angry killjoy in the sky who doesn't want you to have any fun, who's just angry at you all the time, he may love you, but he certainly doesn't like you. If that's your view of God, what Jesus is saying here is that you have missed it. Your view of the Father is wrong, that he is actively searching you out as a shepherd would for his sheep or a woman would for her lost coin, that he is willing and ready to forgive you of everything you've done and declare you his son. 
That is the God that we worship, right? And that's what Jesus is telling us. But he has another audience. Remember, this is to the sinner and the tax collector who, overhearing this, recognize the Father's great love for them. But he's also addressing the Pharisee. And this is where the story ends. So I want to read this starting in verse 25. It says this. After the celebration, after this party, this is the response of the older son. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed. You never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. This is to the person who doesn't think they need forgiveness. This is to the person who looks at the way they live their life and thinks that they have earned something from God. And the fact that God so readily welcomes sinners back is somehow unfair or unjust. This is to the person who refuses to celebrate, the Pharisees. And, and what we might take away from this lesson is even though the Pharisees have declared Jesus their enemy, that Jesus also views them as an enemy. But if we think that, we've missed the heart of the story. Because listen to the father's response to the son who thinks that he deserves better. The response to the son who thinks he deserves better is not for the father to berate him or to punish him. Even though the son is still using the father, he doesn't care about the father, he cares about the father's inheritance. And he's looking at this lavish party and going, well, if this son has already gotten his half, that means this party is being paid for with my half, right? We can understand that he feels a little bit cheated in this scenario. But the father's response, once again, is not to berate his son. What is it? It is to say, you have always been with me and all that I have is yours. In other words, you wanted a feast? I'll throw you a feast. I love you, son. And he invites him in to share his joy about the son that he lost but is now found again. In other words, God's response to the legalistic Pharisee who thinks they deserve more from him is not to berate them, but instead to invite them into his joy. In other words, how much does God care for you? He cares for you so much that when you hate him, declare yourself his enemy, run away and use the inheritance given to you, in other words, our very lives given to us by God in order to spend in things that, that show our hatred of God, our sinful lives, that show our contempt of him. He still loves us and pursues us and is willing to adopt us back as his son. And if you're the person who thinks you deserve something from God because of the way you live you think is exceptional, and you view God not as someone to be loved, as a father to love, love and be loved by, but instead as someone to get good things because you've earned it, to use your father. He also says to you, I love you, and he invites you into his joy as well. This is the God we serve. He is not some angry, killjoy in the sky, waiting for you to mess up to punish you, 
looking at you with contempt because of the way you used your life. No, this is a loving father who goes after you like a lost sheep, who searches for you like a lost coin, who is willing and ready to forgive you as soon as you repent like this father did. This is the God we serve. Why? Because God cares for you. That's right. And you are deeply treasured by God. So what does that mean for us? It means this. If you have not yet received the love of God for you, you can. Look at what the son did in the parable. He just showed up. He just showed up. The father asked nothing but him, but as soon as he was there, he readily forgave him. So if you have been holding on to your own guilt because of your own lifestyle, beating yourself up as some sort of way of earning forgiveness because you think you deserve it, know that God is right there looking for you, ready to forgive you and offer you grace. Grace, it means you do not deserve it, but he is willing and ready to love you and forgive you and invite you as his son. Put on clothes on you, royal clothes of the God of the universe, cleansing you from the pig filth that you've lived in all of your life. He's ready. If you are the religious person that somehow thinks you've earned something from God, know that every person has sinned. Every person is in need of forgiveness. But your own hatred towards God, expressed in your own way, God is still ready to forgive you. He's still ready to invite you to be his son and to celebrate and to enjoy the things that he enjoys as well. And so that's our response. To join God as his son, enjoying what he enjoys, rejoicing how he rejoices, inviting the lost sons into the family and rejoicing when they come helping to clothe them with holiness, helping them wash them clean from their sin. We get to join God in that work and we get a party with him, with the best of the fattened calves. And so with that, I'm going to pray. I'm going to close our time together. Um, but once again, you are invited to stay afterwards for Family Sunday. I hope you stay. Uh, and, I, and, I, and we would like some help clearing the chairs out afterwards. So I'm going to pray and then we can get started on that. Father, thank you so much for how much you've cared for us. Thank you for sending your own son. We know that we could not possibly have made right all that we've made wrong with our lives and that the punishment for our sins should be death. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to come, to live the perfect life we could never live, to die in our place, taking our punishment. And thank you for so freely offering grace to us, for so joyously loving us that that if we just repent and put our faith in you, you, you offer us free forgiveness and you offer to make us more and more like your son Jesus, forever freeing us from our sin and from our filth. Father, I pray that we would take this message to heart and that we'd be transformed into more joyous, more grace-filled people who love you and therefore actively seek out all of your lost sons, joyously celebrating when they turn to you. I pray all this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. Once again, please help us set up the, uh, put up the chairs and set up tables, and please stay afterwards.